Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve here as one of the ministers at Plainfield Christian Church. Um, Have you heard the one about the big city lawyer who went down to Tennessee to go duck hunting? Well, he got down to Tennessee, and he went out on his hunt, and it wasn't long before he managed to shoot a duck, and he, as he went to retrieve the bird, he realized that the duck had fallen into a farmer's field, so he's getting ready to hop the fence and go get his duck, when all of a sudden, the farmer pulls up, and the farmer says, what in the world do you think you're doing? The lawyer says, well, sorry, sir, I just shot this duck, landed in your field, just going to hop the fence, grab my duck, and I'll be on my way. The farmer said, hey, my field, my duck. Well, the lawyer didn't take too kindly to that. He said, hey, listen, buddy, you may not know this, but I'm one of the best trial lawyers in the entire country, and if you don't let me go get my duck, I'm going to sue you so fast it'll make your head spin. The farmer just chuckled and said, well, clearly nobody's told you how we handle things like this in these parts. We operate, you see, by the Tennessee three-kick rule, and it goes like this. I kick you three times, then you kick me three times, and back and forth until somebody gives up. The lawyer thought, well, that's not really how we do things where I'm from. But he kind of looked up them, up and down at the farmer. The lawyer thought, I'm, I'm younger than him, stronger than him. He said, all right, old timer, you go first. And so the farmer winds up, and man, he just plants a kick right in the middle of that lawyer's chest, sends him flying, and the lawyer kind of knocks the wind out of him, but he's, okay, you know, he turns around just in time to have another boot come flying, about to take the nose right off of his face, spins the lawyer around, and before the lawyer can even gather himself, that farmer plants a third kick right in the lawyer's behind, sends him sprawling into the mud. Well, the lawyer gets himself up, and he, you know, dusts himself off, and he turns around, shakes it off. He says, all right, old man, now it's my turn. The farmer said, yeah, never mind, you can keep the duck. (laughs) Listen, we live in a Tennessee three-kick rule world, don't we? Where what goes around comes around, you get what you deserve, and you can never quite tell when somebody's going to be scheming behind your back, ready to kick you down so that they can get ahead. And yet the way of Jesus is fundamentally different than the Tennessee three-kick rule. Maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis before, famous Christian writer from the last century. C.S. Lewis spent most of his career as a professor at the University of Oxford. And so the story goes, one time C.S. Lewis is walking down the hallway, and there in another classroom, there's a group of other professors who are gathered around the chalkboard and they've written out all the world's major religions on the chalkboard and all the big points of each one and they see C.S. Lewis walk by in the hall this world-renowned Christian and they said hey Lewis come on in here they said look at all these I mean what's the difference really here they all are what makes Christianity different than all this aren't aren't they all the same Lewis thought for a second and he said that's easy grace and he walked out of the room Grace is what makes us different. Now, like Kyle said, we're in Mark chapter two. We've been walking through the life of Jesus as recorded by this guy named Mark, and we've seen Jesus embark on this mission, he says, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And the kingdoms of earth, they don't run on grace. I mean, institutions of higher education don't run on grace. Stock markets don't run on grace. Insurance companies don't run on grace. The kingdoms of earth operate by the Tennessee three-kick rule. But we've seen in Jesus' words and in his life 
and in his miracles, he is letting us know time and time again on every single page that the currency of the kingdom of God is grace, that the economy of heaven runs on grace, that it's grace that gets you in the kingdom, and it's grace that keeps you in the kingdom, and it's grace that will lead us home, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We're going to watch this unfold today here in Mark chapter 2 in one particular scene. Let's look at, and, at it together and we'll watch it play out. Mark chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, you might remember last week we saw that Jesus was in Capernaum. Last week we saw a picture of the ruins of the ancient village of Capernaum. This is what it looks like today. It's just a little fishing village here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in Mark chapter 1 last week, we saw Jesus go into this synagogue here where he healed a demon-possessed man. He cast the spirit out. And then as soon as synagogue was over, he walked across the way, went up there to St. Peter's house. He was in Peter's house where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Word got around about that. So when nightfall came, Jesus spent the whole night healing every sick person that they brought to him. When daybreak came, Jesus had gone, though, because the, the, the crowds, they were so big that Jesus had to get away. And so he told his disciples, hey, we got to go from town to town preaching that the kingdom of God has come near. And so they do. But here at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, Jesus is back right here in the little village of Capernaum. And this is what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 3. It says, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. Where Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Pretty, pretty remarkable, right? So here we have this scene here, and there's these five friends, and one of their friends is crippled, and so these four buddies get together, and they say, you know what, we've heard about this healer going around, maybe today's the day, let's try it. And so they get their crippled buddy, and they carry him to the house where Jesus is, but the house where Jesus is is just packed, wall to wall with people who are desperate to hear him teach. They can't even get their buddy in to see this famous healer, and so they turn around, they're getting ready to go home, I guess today's just not our day. But we all have that one friend, right? You know that friend, like the friend who crosses the line and like goes a little too far. Like you've got that friend, you know who I'm talking about right now. Like here's the line and you've got that one friend who always just kind of takes one little step across the line. You know what I mean? And says the thing nobody else is gonna say. And so can you imagine how this conversation is going that these four buddies decide, you know what, today's not our day. And as they're walking away, one of them says, hey guys, look at the roof. What if? <laughs> now, Imagine that you're inside the house and, and Jesus is teaching there inside the house and all of a sudden Jesus starts to hear this noise and, and he looks and he can see the crowds gathered outside the house and he can tell they're like looking up at something. There's some kind of a commotion out there and all of a sudden he can tell people are distracted. They're not really with him anymore. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but like I can see you. I can see every face in this room, okay? And some of you think you're hiding, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can tell when like the glazed look comes over and just like, I'm losing him. I don't know what to do, but I'm losing him. And Jesus can tell he's losing the crowd right here when all of a sudden, bam, right in front of him, a huge chunk of dirt falls from the ceiling. He looks up, light is streaming through from the roof, and these guys lower their buddy down on a stretcher on the ground right in front of Jesus. And now everybody's just waiting, breathless, totally silent. What's gonna happen next? And Jesus looks at the guy with a smirk. <laughs> says, hey, buddy, your sins 
are forgiven. <laughs> Take a look, verse six. Here's what happens next. It says, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? Now, if Jesus were to ask me that question right now, like which of those things is easier, I don't actually know which of those things is easier because I can't do either one of them. I can't heal somebody. I can't forgive somebody's sins. But Jesus is implying that if he can do one, he can do both. So look what happens, verse 10. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Pretty cool story, right? Wouldn't you love to have been there? Now, the question we have to ask is, what does it mean? Um, I love to get the chance to work with people who are like brand new to faith, following Jesus. It's just fresh. It comes alive. I love watching the light bulb go on. And when I sit down with somebody who really wants to read God's word, but they have no idea how to tell what it means or where to start, maybe that's where you are today, I like to recommend that people start with a really simple method called the SOAP method, S-O-A-P, SOAP. And, and it just is really simple. It starts with this. The S stands for scripture. Just quite frankly, like just pick a piece of scripture and read it. Pick a text. doesn't matter how long or how short. Just pick a scripture. I always recommend that people start in the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when you've read the scripture, we move to O, and the O stands for observation. Like, ask some observation questions of the text to help you understand what's going on. Like, hey, what's happening in this text? What's confusing in the text? Who are the characters? Like, what are the questions that I have? And then, once you've read the scripture, you've kind of understood what's happening, then we move to application. The A stands for application, which is where you move from head-level understanding to heart-level living. And that's the key. We want to live out God's word, and so we have to ask some questions to figure out how we want to apply this thing. We ask, what does this text tell me about God? What does this tell me about how to follow God? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a sin to forsake? Is there a promise to believe? And through that lens, we can kind of start to glean how God might want us to lean into whatever he's revealing through his word, which is where we come in with P. P stands for pray. Uh, when we read God's word, it's not just an academic exercise. We want it to be a relational exercise where we're communicating with God through this and we ask God to help us live it out. Now, prayer's really important to have a relationship with God, but if you're anything like me, sometimes prayer's really hard, isn't it? You like don't know what to say, feel like you're saying the same things over and over again, you don't really know how to listen to God, like is this just bouncing off the ceiling or is it actually going somewhere? So if you're wondering how you can pray, just really simply, you can teach this to your kids or your grandkids, you can organize your prayers around four key phrases. Number one, I love you. Just tell God why you love him. Number two, thank you. Tell God thank you for the good things that he's given you. And number three, I'm sorry. Tell God where you've screwed up, your regrets and your failures, your rebellion. Bring out the dark places to him and tell him you're sorry. And then number four, please help. 
ask God for help with the things that you need and the things that the people around you need. So scripture, observation, application, and prayer. We've done this part together. We've done the observation part together. Let's move to the application part, okay? There's several different layers of application we can take, but we're gonna take three specific layers today. Application number one is in this story of Jesus healing this lame man, there is an example to follow. And it's just this. The guy had good friends. Um, Here's the principle. You need friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus. You need friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus. Now, I hope you have a lot of great relationships with all kinds of people and unbelievers. We wanna have relationships with people who aren't followers of Jesus too. But my guess is, if I looked at the 10 people you text most often or the 10 people that you spend the most time with and I just read that text thread or talked to those 10 people, I could probably tell a lot about who you are. Do you have friends in your life who are gonna drag you to Jesus? That's why we really believe in community here. That's why we want every person at PCC to be in a group. You gotta get in a group, get in a group, get in a group. I hope you get sick of us saying it. I hope you live it out. Get in a group. That's why we're pumped that every group here at PCC is going through Rooted right now. We're all doing this together. My wife, Rebecca, and I, were in one of the brand new Rooted groups that's formed, and it's been a blast just watching those relationships form. We've got new friends because of it, and as we share our stories and the pain points of our lives, we've been able to encourage each other, equip each other, challenge each other. You need friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus. This has been one of the best blessings in my life, that for about the last 10 years or so, I've had a really great group of friends that I've gotten to do life with. And we've got a a group text that's blowing up every single day, and we're like a normal group of 10 or 15 dudes. We text about sports, and we kind of smack talk each other, and we send stupid videos to each other, but, but we pray for each other. And I know their story, and and they know mine, and we get together every summer for three days at a lake house, and we eat good food, and we hang out, and we go out on the water, and we talk about the hard stuff, and we equip each other, and we challenge one another to stay faithful over the next year. You need friends who are going to drag you to Jesus. I've got friends in my life who know every little bit of dirt there is to know about me. They've got access to my phone. They've got access to my computer. They've got access to my tax returns. I've got a friend that I call every single Wednesday morning, and we have a phone call where we just purge our souls to each other. That's our only agenda, to just get it all out on the table, everything that's going on. And when I'm down, he's encouraging me. And when he's down, I'm preaching to him and and dragging him to Jesus. You need friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus. Because, like, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of days where my faith tank is running on empty and where my faith is low. And on those days, more often than not, it's the faith of my friends that fills me up. Do you have friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus? I love that actually in the text we just read here, Jesus sees the faith of the man's friends. He sees the faith of the friends and so he decides to heal the layman. You need friends who are gonna drag you to Jesus. That's uh, application number one, but here's application number two. It's not an example to follow, but there's a sin to forsake. It's a a little bit of a deeper level here, and the sin is this. The healthy people on the inside of the house should have made room for the crippled guy on the outside of the house, but they didn't. Now, thankfully, the guy did have good friends who were gonna drag him to Jesus because his friends understood something. His friends understood that people are more important than roofs. That may sound simple, but I just gotta remind you, people are more important than roofs. I hope you know that. The people out there matter so much more than the building right here on 800 Dan Jones Road. That's part of the reason I love being a part of a church like this, that this is our heartbeat. It has been for a long time, and it will continue to be that we are gonna do anything short of sin to reach the lost. Let me say that one more time. We will do anything short of sin to reach the lost. 
absolutely whatever it takes. This church is not meant to be a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And y'all been to the emergency room at the hospital, right? Like it's not a clean place, okay? It's chaotic and it's bloody and it's gory and there's people screaming and it's messy, but that's where people find life and health and healing and we are going to be an ER for people's spiritual wounds. And that means that in here, it's sometimes gonna get messy. Like in here, if we're gonna be a place where we tear the roof off so that people can meet Jesus, where we do anything short of sin to reach the lost, it means there's gonna be coffee spilled on the carpet, right? There's gonna be some words like thrown around in the hallways, it's gonna be kids running around like screaming their heads off, distracting everybody. And I'm just talking about doing ministry to the Proctor family right now. I haven't even talked about everybody else, okay? <laughs> Anything short of sin to reach the lost. Can I just give you a gentle encouragement? I don't wanna be like that house where we're so crowded with insiders that there's no room for the outsiders to meet Jesus. We prayed last week that Jesus would give us his eyes. Can I just encourage you, when you walk in to worship at this place every week, would you walk in with the eyes of Jesus? That means that if you're sitting around somebody that you don't recognize, even if they've been here for 50 years, like would you introduce yourself with a smile, start a conversation, get to know somebody. And that means when you walk in here, um, like could you scoot to the middle of the row? Because there's a lot of people who come in late, they're two songs in, and I'm not even talking about my wife, right? And she's, uh, <laughs> she's not in here right now, please don't tell. Um, <laughs> people come in here and they're brand new, and man, it's hard to walk into a church where it's big and those columns look intimidating, and, and I don't know where to go. Are they gonna preach to me? Are they gonna ask me for money? What am I gonna do? I feel like everybody's looking at me and they walk in here late, and the last thing we want is for them to feel awkward trying to look for a seat. We wanna make it as easy as possible. We're gonna tear the roof off for them to find Jesus here. So let's just like leave the outside of the rows open if that's all right, okay? I'm not judging any of you. I see where you sit. You don't have to be uncomfortable, okay? But we wanna tear the roof off this place. People are more important than roofs. But there's an even deeper level of application. It's not even just an example to follow or a sin to forsake. Application number three is there's a promise to believe Yeah, we want you to have friends who drag you to Jesus. Yes, people are more important than roofs. But Jesus says the whole point of this miracle, actually, is a promise to believe. And he he gives it to us here in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Here's the promise you got to believe. It's really quite simple. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, when you read that, I hope you think, duh, I was hoping for something more profound, right? I hope you've heard that a thousand times and I hope you'll hear it a thousand times more. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. It may sound old hat to you, but when he said that and the religious teachers heard him, they're thinking, what? Only God can forgive sins. Is this guy saying that his word is equivalent to God's word? And yes, yes, he absolutely is. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and he proved it by saying to that man, take up your mat and walk. Listen, the biggest hole that was made on that day was not the hole that those four guys tore in the roof. It was the hole that Jesus ripped in the entire system of the Tennessee three kick rule world to unleash a revolution of forgiveness, a hole through which could flow his restorative grace to heal the crippled and bring sight to the blind and freedom to the captive and forgiveness of sins to all of us. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Practically speaking, here's what that means for your life. Two things. Number one, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. 
go back in your mind with me to Capernaum and imagine that you're one of the dudes up on the roof. You just tore the hole through, lowered your buddy down on a mat, dropped him on the floor in front of Jesus, and now you're peeking down through the hole, watching this whole scene unfold. There's a moment of silence. Everybody's wondering what's gonna happen, and Jesus looks down at your buddy on the stretcher, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I can just be shallow Luke for just a second. If I'm one of the buddies on the roof watching that unfold, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, Jesus, thank you, man. That is great. So thoughtful of you. Really appreciate that. But, like, we carried him here. (laughs) We walked for like four miles. I was really hoping he could walk home, you know? (laughs) And yet Jesus looks down at this guy And he sees that below the surface level physical problem, there's a deeper soul level spiritual problem. And it's the same problem that you and I have. I don't know what problems you're facing today. Um, I don't know what you think the biggest problem in your life is right now. But if I could just gently, lovingly remind you, the biggest problem in your life right now is that you are a sinner and you have rebelled against a holy God, and you have incurred his righteous and just wrath upon you, and you are desperately in need of forgiveness. You and I need forgiveness this morning because I don't know your life story, but I know me, and if you're anything like me, then then the lies that we have told and the people that we have hurt and the selfishness with which we have lived and the greed and the arrogance and the hard-heartedness and the apathy and the secrets, they just rot your soul from the inside out, and what you and I need today is forgiveness. And the good news is that the greatest miracle Jesus ever did wasn't healing a lame man. The greatest miracle Jesus ever did was dying on that cross and rising from the grave to prove once and for all that he has the authority, the ability, and the willingness to forgive us of our sins. And so that means that today, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your trust in him, if you've put your faith in his finished work on the cross and the resurrection, if you've been baptized into him, like we're gonna get to see Brandon baptized in a few minutes, that means that you are forgiven. Look right at me. When he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. You're forgiven. Uh, The greatest art museum in England is London's National Gallery. And if you go to London's National Gallery, they have a painting there on display by Vincent Van Gogh called Sunflowers. We have a picture of sunflowers here. Now, this particular Van Gogh, it's about this big, is valued at $84.2 million dollars. I don't get it. (laughs) Maybe you do. I don't, okay? (laughs) But last October, some activists walked into this art museum carrying some cans of tomato soup. The video's online. You can go watch the video, and they opened those cans of tomato soup and splashed them all over this painting. $84.2 million. Gone. Can you imagine? The good news is, though, that even though they thought this painting was ruined, the painting was actually completely fine. Because if you were to walk into the museum, it looks like it's just a canvas there in a frame exposed to the elements right there for everybody to see. And that's what the activists thought they were doing when they splashed the tomato soup on there. What they didn't realize is that canvas was covered by a very thin, almost invisible veneer of glass. And so all the workers had to do was come in and just wipe the tomato soup right off. And that canvas that they thought was hopelessly stained is spotless and clean without a single mark. 
That's what Jesus does for us. That the enemy is gonna come and he's gonna try to hurl his accusations against you and he's gonna try to drag you back into the dark by reminding you of your sin and your mess ups and your guilt and your shame and your fear and your doubt. He's gonna hurl all kinds of accusations up against you and yet you gotta remember Romans chapter eight verse one that says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can stick to you. Because you and I have been ushered into the kingdom of heaven that runs on the economy of grace. Welcome to the fellowship of the forgiven. You're forgiven. Now, if Jesus has authority to forgive sins, that means that if you are forgiven, then the second thing this means for your life is that you are a forgiver. You are a forgiver. Take a look at what happens next here in verses 13 and 14. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And so what Jesus does here is he calls a tax collector to be his disciple. That's not much to us, but that was radical in those days. You see, you might, you might be a little familiar with the ancient concept of a tax collector. We think of them kind of just as these like grumpy, corrupt dudes who worked for the ancient IRS and they just kind of skim a little off the top to pad their pockets a little more. But it was actually more than that. A good Jew would look at a tax collector as an absolute traitor. As a Jewish person who had forsaken their heritage, who had cut themselves off from the promises of God and aligned themselves with the evil Roman Empire. So when Jesus looks around at all these good, religious, Sabbath observant, true blue Jews, and he says, no, you know, I want that guy. Levi, Matthew, Mr. Tax Collector, I want him to be my follower. That would have been really hard for the other disciples to welcome this traitor in their midst. It'd be hard to forgive him. Let's bring it closer to home. Imagine the type of person who is farthest from you politically. Okay, imagine the type of person who is most different from you socially. Let's bring it really close to home. Imagine the person in your life who annoys you the most. Now, that person that you know, like, if you weren't a Christian, I'd really love to hate that person. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can we just be real with each other? Bring that person into your mind. God loves them. He's absolutely wild about them. In fact, if that was the only person on earth, he still would have sent Jesus to die just for them. So how does God want us to think about these difficult people in our lives? Take a look at what happens next in verse 15. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is saying, hey, Sorry, I came for messy people. I came for sinners. In fact, the only people who are cutting themselves off from my healing are the people who don't admit that they're sick. That's a beautiful promise. But what that means for us really practically is that if you are going to be a part of the fellowship of the forgiven, you have to love who Jesus loves. And you have to forgive who Jesus forgives. 
And that's tough. Jesus taught his followers to pray. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, he taught them to pray, forgive us our debts. Did you catch this phrase though? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I don't know about you. That is a really terrifying prayer to pray because sometimes I'm not all that good at forgiveness. And so for me to ask God, hey, Lord, I want you to forgive me in the same way that I forgive the people who hurt me, that's scary because I know my own heart. And sometimes like, there's still some like Tennessee three-kick rule kind of stuff lingering in here, okay? Still some unforgiveness. And yet, if we fail to forgive as we have been forgiven, a guy named George Herbert, he says it like this. He says, he who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. If we have been forgiven, we must become forgivers. And listen, I know this is hard. It's hard because every single one of us in here has been hurt, and some of you have been hurt really deeply. Um, Studies actually show that the neural pathways that your brain uses to process physical pain, like when something happens to your body, are the same neural pathways that your brain uses to process emotional pain. That's why a broken heart really does hurt like a broken arm hurts. So this is hard and we're not gonna pretend that it's not hard because if we're gonna talk about coming face to face with our pain, with our wounds, with the places where we have been cut and facing that with the forgiveness of Jesus, that's really difficult. And I know that some of you have been in terrible situations where the person who hurt you is completely unrepentant. Some of you have come out of situations of abuse. A lot of you have if the statistics are true. And so let me just clarify real quick what I am saying and what I'm not saying. I am saying that biblical forgiveness is a mandate. It's not optional. As followers of Jesus, he commands us to forgive. And yet even though we give forgiveness freely, we don't always give trust freely. Forgiveness and trust are two different things. And forgiveness does not mean pretending like something never happened. And so some of you are in situations where you need to get help. And if that's true, get help. Come talk to us. We want to talk with you. That's why we have the prayer team up around the edges of the room with their green lanyards on. We're ready to talk for you. The journey to forgiveness is hard and you can't do it alone. Some of you are going to have to walk that journey alongside a really good Christian counselor and you're going to have to work it out with them. You're going to have to work it out in meetings with some of us ministers. We love, love, love to meet with people. Don't do this alone. Some of you are going to have to work this out in your group or with your good godly friends and you guys know this from experience. The thing about forgiveness is that most of the time for me, it's not just like a check that off my list, glad I'm done with that and never have to revisit it. More often than not, I gotta wake up the next day and forgive all over again. It's hard. Because real forgiveness as a follower of Jesus means you have to look face to face with the wounds on your soul and you have to trust the Lord and ask him to help you see those people who cut you the way that he sees them. And here's what's at stake if we don't. If we fail to address those wounds They start to fester, and they get infected, and hurt becomes bitterness. Max Lucado, he says it like this. He says, resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you poke, stoke, feed, and fan the fire, stirring the flames and reliving the pain. Resentment is the deliberate decision to nurse the offense until it becomes a black, furry, growling grudge. And when we do that, if we give in to unforgiveness and we let it become a poison inside of us, then if we fail to forgive, here's what happens. If you refuse to release and continue to rehearse, then you begin to resemble. 
Let me say that one more time. If you refuse to release, you continue to rehearse, then you begin to resemble. We become the very thing that we hate because we're holding on to that so deeply that it boils and it festers and it gets out of us like a poison and oozes to the people around us all this bitterness and this blackness instead of bestowing on the people around us the life and the joy and the forgiveness and the freedom of Jesus himself. I've heard it said like this before, that if you fail to heal what hurt you, you'll bleed on people who didn't cut you. None of us want to be that, do we? So the question then becomes, how do we forgive? This is not an exhaustive study on forgiveness, okay? I'm not gonna give you like 10 easy steps to this, but I will give you step one. And step one of forgiveness is we have to learn to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, and out of that, see other people the way Jesus sees them. So when you read this story here in Mark chapter two, like who are you in this story? Because I know who I am. I'm the tax collector. I'm the crippled dude laying there absolutely unable to help myself. I'm not the righteous person, the healthy person who doesn't need any help and has it all together. I'm the sinner. I'm the dude who is sick, desperately in need of a doctor. And when I learned to do that, first and foremost, when you learn to see yourself as a sinner who is desperately in need of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God, then out of that, he enables you to see the other people around you the way that he sees them as well, desperately in need of that same grace that you and I have been given. Now, I don't know about you, but that's hard. It's hard for me to do because I'm still human, right? And so I tend to think of myself as the good guy and the other person as the bad guy. And I look around, and when I look at other people, I see their history. I see the things they've done. I see their past. I see the things they've said. But God looks at them, and he sees the blood of his son, and he welcomes them into the fellowship of the forgiven, and we're called to do the same thing. It's hard. And it's also really hard because for some of you, the person that God is calling you to forgive it's the person who's sitting right next to you. <laughs> so no elbows, okay? Maybe it's your spouse. Let's just dial in on one example. Maybe it's your spouse. We all know marriage is a tough thing sometimes. My dad says that marriage is the union of two good forgivers, that that's what it takes. And, and we've been in those seasons before where it feels like you just can't move forward in your relationship because you're just watching the history channel, right? You're just like replaying all that stuff that happened a long time ago, all bringing back up to the surface all the wounds of the past with every little paper cut in the present. And it's just this cycle and these patterns of behavior that drive the hurt deeper and deeper and the distance gets wider and wider. And when you're in that season and you've been in that rut for so long, it's really hard to look at the other person with the eyes of grace and see them the way that Jesus sees them. Did you notice though what Jesus said in this story to the lame man? He said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Why did he tell the guy to take up his mat? I mean, it's not because Jesus like cared about cleaning the house and getting rid of clutter. There's dirt all over the floor, okay? Why did he, he the guy didn't need the mat anymore. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus wanted him to keep that mat as a reminder of his healing. Maybe he wanted him to keep that mat as a trophy of grace so that every time he walked by it, he would be reminded of his weakness. I have a trophy of grace in my house that reminds me of my weakness. If you come to my house and you open the door and walk in the entryway, there's a frame there on the wall with a collage of pictures from Rebecca and I on our wedding day. 
And one night, several years ago, I was mad. I was pretty hot. And, and to be honest, I don't even remember what I was mad about. But I know I acted in some ways that were shameful and embarrassing. And I said a bunch of stuff that I regret. And I stormed out of the room and I slammed the door with authority. <laughs> and when I did, that, that frame fell and the glass shattered all over the ground. And after a while, when I came back in, I was just embarrassed, you know. And Rebecca had every right to do the Tennessee three-kick rule thing. <laughs> But she didn't. I, I remember so clearly she didn't have a comeback, didn't have a word. She just got down on her knees on the floor right next to me and helped me clean it up. She's a forgiver. And we found a piece of glass. We had some piece of glass in the house that kind of sort of fit. And so we put it in the frame and we put the frame back up. And so if you come into my house today, you'll notice that collage of pictures of Rebecca and I's wedding. If you look real close, the glass doesn't quite fit the frame. <laughs> like there's little pieces of picture and paper sticking out around the edges. It's just not quite right. But I'm not gonna fix it because I love that. That picture to me is a trophy of grace. It's a reminder of my weakness. It's a reminder of the forgiveness that I have received, the forgiveness that is the foundation of every good relationship of any kind. And so if I could just give you a gentle reminder today, the next time somebody cuts you, remember who you are, that you and I are trophies of grace, that you and I are forgiven, and that because of that, through Christ in us, we can be forgivers. So the next time somebody cuts you, you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. The next time somebody cuts you, you remember 1 Peter chapter 4 that says, love covers over a multitude of sins. The next time somebody cuts you, you remember Colossians chapter 3, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And oh, how Jesus has forgiven you. Because you and I, we sinned against him, we rebelled against him, we each hurt him deeply. But Jesus did not hold on to the offense, he did not become bitter, Jesus didn't hold a grudge, Jesus came. He tore off the roof and he came. Jesus came down from glory and he wrapped himself in human flesh for you. And Jesus came and he walked for 33 years the dusty roads of this planet, trading the praise of angels for the company of some smelly fishermen, and he did it for you. And Jesus trudged late at night into the garden of Gethsemane and he got down on his knees and he sweat great drops of blood and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And he did it for you. And then Jesus took the cross and he marched up Calvary's hill, the king of heaven, wearing a crown of thorns, and he took the nails and he died for you. So you forgive as the Lord forgave you. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.